I'm guessing I'm not the only one here who has at some point in my life desired a personal message from God, maybe even a handwritten note, maybe even a note written by the finger of God. And if you've even looked at the title of the passage, you know what we're talking about from our passage today. Here's a famous painting of it from Rembrandt in the 1630s of the hand writing on the wall. Here's another one a couple of hundred years later by a guy named John Martin, emphasizing the scale of the party with the Lord's. These sorts of stories in Daniel, we've already gotten these, right? We've gotten these stories of God communicating through dreams, God communicating from a voice to Nebuchadnezzar last week, and here, God communicating through handwriting on the plaster of the wall in front of over a thousand people. And some of us might be wondering, does God still do that now? Does God still communicate through dreams, through supernatural things? I'm not making this up. This very week, as I was preparing this sermon, I had two memorable dreams. I'm not going to go into great detail. One involved keyboardist Brad Metz, a cruise in Scandinavia. The second one, not making this up. You can't make up this humor. Scott Rosencrantz, a go-kart and a monkey. I wasn't, I wasn't troubled by either of those dreams, so I guess I didn't seek out the elders to help me interpret what the monkey represented and why the go-kart was involved. The point being that I feel that we all feel a little bit of this tension, and we just sang it too, didn't we? We just sang, speak God. Like we want God to speak to us, and we should desire God to speak to us. Renew our minds. The very first verse, speak, O Lord, as we come to you and receive the food of your holy word. So what we're doing right now is we're going to God's word, begging for him to speak to us, and that's exactly what we want to do. But we feel this slight tension of, okay, God, I know you've revealed yourself in your word, but perhaps something supernatural might help me. And we're actually going to see today's passage, one of the key points is you might think that we need the supernatural activity we have what we need with God's revealed word. So we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 5. Go ahead and be opening to that, and I will pray that God will help us. Oh, God, uh, speak to us as we go to your word. Help us to understand it, to love it, to be humbled by it, and to apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to just start in. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter, uh, but I'm going to read it in chunks because it's long and we'll make comments uh, throughout. So we're starting in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read the first little bit. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. They brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubine drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately upon entering this new chapter, something jumps out right off, and that is 
hey, what happened between chapter 4 and now? Chapter 4 ends with Nebuchadnezzar, and at verse 1, all we get is a new king. I'm going to say a little more about him and his background in a second, but I think right off the bat that helps us to sort of understand not just the book of Daniel, but really the whole Bible, and that is the book of Daniel is not intended to be a systematic history of Babylon or a comprehensive history of the Israelites' time in Babylon even. Commentators think there's a 30-year gap between chapter 4 and 5, and that's not an accident. like we lost a couple of chapters. It's purposeful because there's something that the author is doing with that gap and with this new king. We'll see what that thing is right away. Because the new king is introduced. We don't have any biography about him, but the author definitely wants us to know what the king's all about, what he's doing, and he's throwing a surprising party. It's surprising in a couple of different features. It's surprisingly large, over 1,000 people, along with the king's wives, the king's concubines. Uh, historians think that there were rooms in ancient Babylon that could have contained well over, multiple rooms that could have contained well over 1,000 people. That's unusual size party for this time. Usually you wouldn't have the lords, the wives, the concubines, and that large of a group all together. So this wasn't an every single night situation, it doesn't seem. It's also a surprising time to throw a party. And we now have to skip to the end. If you look at the very last verse, you find out that this happens to be the last night that Babylon stands. Darius the Mede, in the last verse, received the kingdom being about 62 years old, because they didn't have stealth bombers at the time that could fly in undetected, we have great evidence that the army was at the gate of Babylon. So while the army's at the gate, the king is throwing a huge party. We could play psychology and try to guess why. Maybe it's because, as Randy pointed out last week, the, the, the walls were so tall and so thick that he just was so utterly convinced that they couldn't be defeated. A number of other things could be the case as well. Daniel definitely points out there's pride going on here. So it's a surprising big group. It's a surprising time to have a party. But that ain't nothing yet, right? The most surprising thing is what he calls for in the midst of the party. I like the way this entire story, there's, Daniel has a lot of good features, the way it's written that makes it enjoyable and sometimes even amusing. But in verse 2, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, right, in verse 1, he drank in front of the thousands. That makes me think of Isaiah where it says, woe is he who is a champion at drinking wine. <laughs> woe is he who is uh, great at, at mixing strong drink. That seems to be the guy, right? Hey, I'm in front of the frat party. I'm drinking in front of you guys. When I've tasted the wine... Then he makes this most surprising decision. He's like, hey, remember those vessels. Now, if we had read all this at once, we might even remember from Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, when Nebuchadnezzar first took Judah, he plundered the house of God. And he took the vessels and put them in his own storage shed. Sort of it's a representative sample of, hey, look, what we have conquered this God. We have their stuff. So Belshazzar says, I got an idea. Go get those golden cups. 
bring them here, we'll drink from them. Think about this just for a second. Like, we know our Old Testament. We know that these things that God had the Israelites make had very intended purposes, right? They're not intended to be a Nebuchadnezzar storage shed. They're not intended to be brought out for a drunken party. They're not intended to be served with fruit punch or, right, the mixture of the day with an umbrella in the top of it. They're not intended to be lipped by the pagans, and they're certainly not intended to be held in the hands, touching the lips, while those very same lips are doing what? Those very same lips are praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Wow. Wow. If we didn't already know what was going to happen, we could pause now and say, hey, what do you think God's going to do, <laughs> right? Like, let's use our imagination. What's God going to do next? And if you're like me and you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you think they're going to melt. <laughs> like those Nazis, when they open up the ark that's going to come out, they're going to think it's beautiful for a second, then their faces are going to melt, and somehow the special of effects of 1981 are more terrifying than anything we can create today. Speaking of Indiana Jones, let's do a quick aside about archaeology. And this is a quick one, because I like this stuff, but it's not really the key point of the passage, but it is helpful. Daniel 5 has been evidence for a number of years previous to certain kinds of scholars that Daniel was myth. It was made up. It was not historically accurate. The reason they said that was because according to extra-biblical historians, meaning not the Bible being counted as a piece of history, but Greek historians had no record of this king. Now, that's important because Greek historians had plenty of records of who the king was when Babylon fell, and it just wasn't this guy. It was a guy called Nabonidus. So, of course, historians are like, oh, look at there. Bible's wrong. Your Bible says Belshazzar is the king whenever it actually wasn't. Then, this is a little while ago, but in around 1850, Indiana Jones finds two separate things. So the guy's name is not Indiana Jones. The actual guy's name I have written down here somewhere. Well, I may not even be able to find it. Um, there he is. George, John George Taylor, a Brit. Obviously, a Brit, half of the Beatles named their children after him. <laughs> he found this cylinder in the dirt, and the cylinder proves that Nabonidus had a son named Belshazzar, and that they reigned together. And I'm going to detail. Those of you who like this stuff, take a picture of it. Go look it up. Not right now, because there's lots of interesting things here. But it basically verifies the fact that Belshazzar was actually right to be called the king of Babylon, and he was the king for 10 years while Nabonidus decided to kind of go off on a retreat, and they split their kingship into two separate realms. Not only that, it actually helps us with a couple of mysteries in the text. It creates one exegetical problem immediately, and that is we're going to see throughout the text uh, both the queen and Daniel refer to Nebuchadnezzar as the father of Belshazzar. 
But we understand that in the exact same way that the Old Testament speaks about Abraham as a father. He was the father of the nation. He was his father in that he sat on the same throne, even though it wasn't his biological father. But it helps with two mysteries. One of them is, throughout in two, ver- two separate times, we see that whoever can interpret this reading, this writing, will be positioned as the third in the kingdom. So now that makes sense because we've got Nabonidus, we've got Belshazzar, and the third in the kingdom. The other thing it helps us with is here in a second, the next thing we're going to read is about a queen who comes in. But wait, if she was the queen, wouldn't she be one of the wives? And if she's one of the wives, wouldn't she be already in the room? And we make it to believe this is somehow like a queen mother, maybe the, the, the wife of Nabonidus himself. Cool history. Those of you who like history. Here's another little bit of history. Johnny Cash's first ever gospel song with Sun Records was a song called Belshazzar. Those of you who like this, where's Adam Shade? Adam, this is for you. Okay. Go listen to that. So we're hitting everybody, right? We've got the history junks. The Johnny Cash history buffs, we've got everybody going today. All right, let's go back. Maybe we shouldn't look to Hollywood to determine what God's going to do when they're drinking, worshiping idols while they drink from the golden cups. Maybe we can just think of what the Bible itself says to people that do these sorts of things, right? In 2 Samuel 6, we have a guy who touches the ark, right? And he's consumed, he's dead. Leviticus 10, we have the sons of Aaron, right? They're burning some weird stuff in the temple. And what happens, right? Fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them. So we know things aren't going to go well for Belshazzar, and that's exactly what happens next in our story. Let's pick it up. Chapter 5, verse 5. Immediately the fingers of human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave away and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. What does God do? God creates a communication, but in this case, it's a riddle, a finger, a hand, a human hand, Verse 5, Daniel later calls it the hand sent from God, comes into the room opposite the lampstand, which we're not exactly sure what to mean by that other than it was well lit, right? It seems like everyone was able to see it, so the party probably sobered up pretty quickly. Now, the author doesn't have much to say about the hand other than that. Human hand with fingers sent by God. But the author has a ton to say about Belshazzar's response right? Written in colorful language, right? His color changed, right? It was a color-changing calligraphy on the wall, right? His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. It was a knee-knocking note. I've got a bunch of these, but I'm going to spare you for the rest of them. So what what does he do? Part of it is we love to see the humility, right? 
he immediately goes from proud hero of drink in front of his lords because of God's work, he's immediately humiliated, immediately brought to his knees. So what does he do? He calls in his ragtag band of interpreters, right? The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Now, I will confess when I'm preaching, I'm always trying to find places to sneak a little humor in, but I think that the author is intending us to kind of laugh at this point, right? This is the third time these guys have been called. They've come twice for dream interpretations and failed both times, and they come now for this third time, and I feel like the author kind of wants us to think, what are these guys going to do, right? They're not going to have much more success. You got this set of Keystone cops rolling in. It's almost as if in their manual it said, okay, here's the way that we are Chaldeans and sorcerers. Go see the puzzle. Step two, shrug shoulders. We don't know. Their Yelp review couldn't be very good at all, right? These guys will fail every time in the book of Daniel. And that's exactly what happens again. And apparently he had some hope placed in them because once again, his color changes again. Let's pick it back up in 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because he is an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Let's keep going. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Not a lot we need to say here. His color is changing. The Chaldeans have no luck interpreting. He's sort of hopeless. The queen comes in. Right? If you think about the book of Esther, it's sort of a bold move on her part. She hears the commotion from outside. She comes in and she says, hey, there's a guy in your kingdom. Right? This isn't someone who's remote and far away. He's here. In fact, he used to be in the king's court. And here's where this passage of time is really important. These 30 years that bridge this gap somehow have caused Daniel during these transitions. They think that actually there was a number of kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, even before Nabonidus. So in these transitions, somehow Daniel got removed from being in the court of the king and sort of like put on a dusty shelf somewhere. For 30 years, 
They think he's around 80 years old at this point. We're going to draw some implications later about that patience that we see in Daniel and what God must have been doing in and through him at that time. So the queen's like, call Daniel. We actually notice in the queen's talk, there's a very strong similarity between Daniel's Babylonian given name, Belteshazzar, and this king's name, Belshazzar, and they really are basically the same name, protected by this god, Bel. We're going to see at the end of the story that Belshazzar is not all that protected by this god in what's going to come to him. Whenever Daniel finally comes, the king sort of, doesn't it feel like the way it's written? He's got a little bit of, well, you're that Daniel. I've been told that you can enter. He doesn't have a lot of confidence in Daniel's ability here. Um, and we're going to see from Daniel's own conversation, he should know better. He should know something about Daniel because he should be familiar with the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's keep reading. I'm going to read to the end. This is our longest chunk. We're going to get Daniel's response. We're going to get the interpretation. And we're going to get the conclusion. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast." And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Daniel was third ruler in the kingdom, but not for very long, right? That very night, that kingdom changed hands into another kingdom. There's a number of things we can pull out of what Daniel says. The first thing we grasp is 
what Daniel's response to Belshazzar is one of, yeah, you just keep your stuff. I don't need it. And it almost feels a little bit dismissive, particularly in compared with the way that Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and the later books, the next chapter, he's going to say, oh, king, live forever. So Daniel's not one to not give reverence to the king when appropriate. I think part of the reason for that is Daniel's already walked into the room, he's already seen the scene, and he's already read the message. He knows what's about to happen. He knows that this is a man who's not humbled himself. Daniel starts in. Belshazzar is excited for the magic show. He wants the interpretation, right? Hop to it. But he doesn't realize that Daniel's got a history lecture first. Got to get through the lecture before we get to the magic show. Can almost imagine Belshazzar's like, come on, man. You had one job. Let's get to it. It's sort of the whole point, right? Belshazzar doesn't seem to be one interested in learning from history, and it's exactly what Daniel's pointing out. And Daniel's history lesson seems at first glance to all be about Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's talking about, oh, the Nebuchadnezzar and what he could do. He had greatness and glory and majesty. He had peoples and nations and languages whom he would he killed, whom he would he kept alive. Then it's about Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, how Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up. God said, go eat some grass for seven years. He goes and eats grass, and then his reason is restored to him. So it very much is a history lesson about Nebuchadnezzar, but even more so, it's a history lesson about God. Right? Just If you read back through it, God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, Right? And as you keep reading through it, you see a lot of these verbs that show that God was the one who was doing these things. And then it ends with, until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So the story seems to be about a history lesson about Nebuchadnezzar. It's really a history lesson about God. And the history lesson ends being pointed directly at Belshazzar with over 10 times that Daniel's pointing his finger at him, but you, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. You have called for the vessels to be brought in. You have drank wine from them. Setting the scene for the interpretation. The two specific sins Mentioned in the text that Belshazzar hits, we see in 22 and 23. In 22, he says, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. That specific sin in the text, number one. And then at the very end, we see specific sin, number two mentioned, you have not honored. The God in whose hand is your breath, you have not honored. The specific sins are you have not humbled yourself and you have not honored God. And because of those specific sins, and particularly this particular night, the hand was sent. And then Daniel's like, I'll give you the interpretation. Here's the interpretation. They're measurement terms. Historically, we don't know why the Chaldeans couldn't read it. Very likely that it was written in Aramaic. This is part of the New Old Testament that's written in Aramaic, which they should have been able to read. Aramaic's not pointed, so maybe it doesn't have their verbs. It doesn't really matter, though. It doesn't matter why, because it's actually clear they could neither read it nor interpret it. They couldn't do either. Daniel walks in, and it seems, I think it's sort of interesting, in Daniel 2, he and his friends pray, 
God in the night gives them the interpretation. In Daniel 4, Daniel is troubled for a bit, and then he gives the interpretation. It's hard to know if there he's, it's like troubling with how to get the interpretation, or he's just troubled to tell it. It almost seems like he's troubled to tell it. Whereas here, it's very immediate, right? He immediately is able to say, hey, I, I got it. Here's the interpretation. These words are measurement terms, and he's going to interpret them to say, oh, the first measurement term is number. And the interpretation is, your days are numbered for the kingdom. The second measurement term is a term for weighed. And he's going to interpret that, that you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And the third measurement term is to divide. And that is to interpret is that your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that's exactly what happened. Belshazzar gives him the reward, and then that very night, Belshazzar dies. I think that it makes sense the way it's written, that we're not supposed to believe that was a supernatural death, but just that the Medes came in, took the city, put him to the sword, which is appropriate exactly what they would do at that time. All right, I've got, that kind of finishes going through. I've got six big lessons that I think we can draw from this to hopefully apply to our own hearts, to our own lives, to our own church, to our own family. Lesson number one is the lesson about humility. It's the clearest message that drives itself, not even just through chapter five, but chapter four previously, and here's the lesson. God humbles those who are proud. God humbles those who are proud. I think that's why there's a number of terms describing Belshazzar's physical state at humiliation. For whatever reason, lately on my Instagram slash Facebook feed, I've been getting a number of these, MMA, I'm going to blame Trent for this, but I've been getting a number of these MMA videos, and they say something like, he was humbled, and it starts off in the first of the clip of one of the two guys not touching gloves or talking a little, you know, junk at the weigh-in or whatever else, and then it immediately clips to that guy being knocked out. Because we like watching proud people get humbled. Until it's us that are the ones that need the humbling, right? Then it's not as much fun. It's exactly what we see here, right? Belshazzar's sins, he's, he's worshiping gods that don't exist while holding God's very vessels. The presumptuousness of this sin, the in-the-faceness of this sin, God will humble. I cannot imagine that in a room this size there's not people here that are holding presumptuous sins thinking, I'll give them up later. Thinking, oh, it's not really that big of a deal. Maybe even you're baptizing them with the gospel and saying, well, Jesus, didn't Jesus die for my sins? And I think that there's something to be said that if we are in a state like Belshazzar, God will humble us. That's what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. The difference was Nebuchadnezzar, by the end of the Nebuchadnezzar story, is a post-humiliation Nebuchadnezzar, and we're being greeted here with a pre-humiliation Belshazzar. But make no mistake, every human will be humbled before the judgment of God. So I beg of you, 
Humble yourself today. Get rid, repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. We'll talk about that more. So the first lesson is the lesson of humility, and that points us to Jesus. Jesus came with humility, right? Jesus gave up the throne. Jesus came as a baby. There's multiple passages in the New Testament pointing our nose in the direction of the humility of Jesus. We need to humble ourselves. Jesus is the most humble man. Kenny already referenced the passage, verse 17 from chapter 4, that he, God gives it to whom he will and sets his kingdom over the lowliest of men. It's a reference coming for the Messiah. Lesson two. Lesson two comes from the life of Daniel. Here's lesson two. It is the wisdom lesson, and here it is. Slow and steady time with God and in his word gives us wisdom that is not otherwise available. Slow and steady time with God and in his word gives us wisdom that is not otherwise available. I don't think the point of Daniel is how smart Daniel is, right? I don't think it's, oh, wow, he must be really gifted. I bet his SAT scores are really high. No, I think the point is, this is a man who loved God, lived his life according to the principles of God, and took seriously the word of God. That's what we see in the earlier chapters of Daniel. It's what we're going to see next week in Junior's passage as well. And that time saturating, marinating in God's word gives him insight that the Chaldeans and the sorcerers, I've made fun of them, but these guys aren't clowns, right? These guys are like, this is, this is one of the most advanced societies in the world, particularly at that time, the most advanced. These guys were the university professors. These guys were the Harvard deans. And Daniel knew more than they did. Why? Because he was saturated, marinated, slow and steady for 30 years. We think that when he showed up, he was probably under 20. Some people think 17 years old. Here he is, 80, right? Slow and steady, pursuing in prayer and in the study of the words that God had given him, gives him wisdom. Oh, young people, do you believe that? Old people, do we believe that? Do we believe that that kind of focused attention on God's word will open up avenues, aspects of the world to us that you cannot get otherwise? Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to do more of that. Big lesson number three. I'm going to call this the lesson from knowledge. And it's found what I think in the crux of our passage for chapter five in verse 22. I did a cheat this week, and it was actually, I'll probably start doing it every time. Wednesday night, this is a commercial for the Bible study. Wednesday night Bible study, the men right now, I don't know if they'll continue doing it, but they're going through the passage that's going to be preached. So I thought, wait, I get an hour of free sermon prep on Wednesday night by going up there and letting my brothers in the Lord prepare with me. And this was pointed out, Kenny, but also other people as well. I don't think I would have nailed it quite like I, the Lord helped me to by my brothers in the Lord. Look at verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. There's an objection behind here, I feel like, that some of us might be thinking. That is, wait, wait, wait. Okay, time out. 
Nebuchadnezzar got a warning in a dream, and then he got the divine word from God, then he was humbled, then he got to come back. He got a warning. It's not fair that Belshazzar didn't get a warning. By the time he gets his message, it's too late. It was the same day. That's not fair. Let's throw a flag on God. But Daniel's entire history lesson is pointing, no, you knew all this, right? In other words, this wasn't a history lecture. It was just a review. We've already gone over this. You should already know this. I still think some of us are like, but wait, but still, is that really fair? Does that help that much? I mean, surely if God had spoken to Belshazzar, surely he would have humbled himself as well. Why didn't Belshazzar get the same benefits of a supernatural word from God that his father got. I think Daniel's point is, he did. He has the story of his father. That's the story. In fact, because he knew all this, he's now responsible for that part of the story as well. And the mistake that our objection makes is to think that the handwriting on the wall is a warning. It's not a warning, it's a judgment. It's a judgment for missing the warning that came to Nebuchadnezzar in his own life. And because you have forgotten to take heed to the warning, you are now judged, and it's tonight. Randy did a nice job of pointing out in chapter 4, this sort of in between the interpretation and the humiliation before that year to say, hey, you could change your ways. That exact same point is available for Belshazzar. It's just at this point in time, it's too late. This is a sufficiency of Scripture point, isn't it? This is a point of as much as we might think, yeah, I'd like to have a, a, a finger on the wall. In this case, it's like, well, not really, Belshazzar. You don't want that message. But I think Daniel's point here is God's revelation to us is enough. My favorite definition for the sufficiency of Scripture is we have all the words from God that we need. Look at Hebrews 1. Long ago and many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Let's skip to the first of Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If he's being judged for the knowledge of the experience that Nebuchadnezzar got, how much more is he responsible, are we responsible for having the whole story? I got to move fast now. Lesson four, the lesson about the kingdom. Here's the lesson. God removes and sets up kings. It's exactly what Daniel 2.21 says. All the way through Daniel, we're reminded that God is the one who sets up kings, and we're hinted that there will come a kingdom that will never pass away, and that's another explicit reminder that Jesus is the one who sets up that eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus is here to do. Lesson five, the lesson about comfort. God's people should take comfort in the midst of turmoil and upheaval. I was thinking about, like, when this army comes in, the thousand lords, I'm sure there was chaos, there was fear, there was terror, but you kind of get the sense that Daniel's kind of just like, oh, yeah, all right, well, new kingdom, all right, right? No big deal. Upheaval, no big deal. Why? Because I'm here to 
to benefit this kingdom and pray for this kingdom, but at the end of the day, my citizenship is not primarily with this kingdom. It's exactly like us. So whether you're in the midst of potential political upheaval, I talk to people in this church. If either of the two presumptive nominees wins, there will be people in this church nervous. I know that, regardless of which side wins. See my point? But it's a good reminder to us, oh, you know what? If Daniel can make it till he's 80, I think we can survive four years. God's, in its, God's on the throne. God's in control. We can take comfort. We can take comfort regardless of our personal situation. And the final lesson is the lesson about being weighed and found wanting. Here's the lesson. We all, too, will be weighed, and we will all be found wanting. But God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That, that frightening message, you've been weighed. If you, look at, if, if you look at the interpretation, the first and the third parts are for the kingdom. Your kingdom is going down. That middle one is you specifically. You have been weighed and you have been found wanting. We will be weighed and we will be found wanting as well, except that God laid on Jesus the iniquity that we deserved. i got to tell the story real quick. In high school football, uh, two-a-days in Oklahoma, it was August, it was always over 100 degrees. It was horrible. Of course, you're 17 years old and you're too dumb, you don't know how bad it is. And so one year, was, I think it was 105, 110, it was really a hot uh, two-a-days. And so our coaches wanted us to weigh in as we stepped on the scales. And it was like that old school scale that you had to kind of push the thing over, right? So the idea, I think, was they were trying to probably just cover themselves from like, if, you know, if we all passed out, I was like, well, they weigh the same at the beginning of practice at the end, so, you know, no big deal or something like that. I don't know what the point was. So you had to weigh yourself before practice and you had to weigh yourself after practice and, you know, maybe lost a pound or a half pound or something like that. One time I'm weighing after practice, and I weighed about 180 pounds in high school. Not the biggest guy on the team. So I'm sliding it over, I hit 180. It's weird. 181, 182, 188, 200. Never goes down. I turn around. Offensive lineman Brock Allen standing on the scale behind me. <laughs> Grinning. He weighs over 200 pounds. He's standing on the scale. Here's the point, right? We're going to be weighed. And on our own weight, it's finally going to tip. And that's going to be the time where on our own merit, God's going to say, you were waiting, you were found wanting. But God's provided for us through Jesus, the one who is never going to tip the scales. His merit is infinite. And they have placed that on behalf of those of us who have trusted Jesus so that we can, instead of being said to us, you've been waiting, you've been found wanting, it is... Well done. Well done. You are faithful. You are righteous because of what Christ has done for you. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us to take heed to these lessons. Help us to take heed to your word and plant it into our hearts for growth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.